one of the critical takeaways from the summit was around ensuring that we double down on inclusivity, whether it is businesses, whether it is governments, whether it is everyone, even as Ukraine crisis is going on, their biggest challenge is that they find the next seed to plant, that they find the next fertilizer to plant. So we need to empower people, not, not feed people. Talk about fishing. Mm -hmm. This is the opportunity that we've probably all been waiting for. Can we use this attention to actually empower people to have the means to be able to do things themselves? Because every time you need someone to feed you, they'll come a little bit too late, a little bit too little. So I would just say, let everybody work to ensure that communities are being empowered mm. to survive the challenges they're living with, that we are strengthening resilience. That would be my biggest call. Hello and welcome to the Hub Culture Davos Summer Campus, situated high in the Alps of Europe in Davos, Switzerland, around the context of the World Economic Forum 2022, happening this year for the first time ever in May. That means that we're surrounded by lush mountains, low drifting clouds, dandelions and wildflowers, not the usual snow and snow boots trudging through icy air. But you know what? The opposite of these beautiful surroundings that we're in right now here in Davos is the reality for over 200 million people who are expected to be displaced by climate change. From digital identity to new frameworks for global residency, the world requires urgently new thinking. Tune in now as we go to a live lunch conversation to discuss frameworks and solutions for solving this refugee issue. Joining us will be a number of people from the lunch for a live and interactive conversation, including Lady Maryam Jam from I Am The Code, who's working with the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. Myself, Stan Stalnaker from Hub Culture, really looking at how Hub ID can help drive digital identity. Also, Gail Whiteman from Arctic Base Camp, talking about the impact of melting glaciers on oceans, which then affect coastal communities, which is really 60% of the world. There'll be other exciting and amazing speakers joining us. So we're going to get into it. It's a really heavy topic. This is a new topic for us for the podcast. We're really looking at the refugee situation that's growing around the world. And the idea of this episode, this live stream, and this lunch is to work on ideas for frameworks to address a very urgent and growing situation. Some quick numbers for you, and they're changing by the day. Up until recently, there were 68 million refugees that were documented in the world. And because of the Ukraine situation, that has grown to over 72 million. Those were numbers that were from March or April when we started thinking about this event. The numbers that we've heard just in Davos are that those numbers have actually grown to more like 85 million. So we've added an extra 15 million refugees just in the last eight weeks. That's also exacerbated by a growing issue around what we call climate displacement. Because of climate displacement, there's an estimated 200 million people that are expected to be displaced by 2030. So this creates a very large issue for both geopolitical stability, for human survival, and just quality of life at large. One of the other facts that's actually pretty sobering is that when a person enters a refugee camp or a migration displacement situation, the average length of time that they remain in that situation is 20 years. It's not like they're in and out. Once you're in a refugee camp, you could be there much of the rest of your life. Your children could be in a camp like that. 
There are these camps and places around the world that are being built to house displaced people. And this overflows into urban development in many cities around the world, across Africa, across Asia. And these informal cities are becoming actually the growth engines for large cities around the world, from Lagos to Mexico City to any city in the global south, essentially. The outer rings of these cities are being populated largely by displaced people, or at least people who are affected by migration. So the idea of this conversation was to begin to pull together people who are interested in finding solutions, whether on the ground or digital, to try to create frameworks so that people can exit displacement. There's many, many people, a growing group of people who are stuck. We need to figure out ways to get them unstuck. So I'm gonna hand it over first to Mariam Jamey, who's with I Am The Code. She's been working with refugees and refugee camps across Africa. Please tell us a little bit about your story. We know that you had some of the girls that you work with in the forum just now, which is an amazing accomplishment. Tell us a little bit of your story and let's hear. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always honored to, to be invited at Davos to, to speak. So I'll tell you before I, I even started to talk to refugees, you know, what makes me who I am and why I do what I do. I, I grew up in Senegal in, in very tough conditions, ended up in Europe. I'm not a refugee, but I had a very difficult, tumultuous childhood all the way to ended up in the UK being a cleaner, working for, you know, a, a white family. And then, you know, every single day I will go to a local library to learn how to read and write and and then you know start learning how to code. I live in the southeast of England, which is a very posh place. I'll tell you my jokes about yummy mummies soon. <laughs> but it's a very posh place. So I'm almost the only black woman on the street. But I, I think my passion is really justice and, and making sure that what happened to me as a child doesn't happen to many, many girls out there. And I'm now 47 years old. I see the same issues, nothing is changing. The world is, is full of wealth and connections and, you know, I mean, the amount of people here at Davos, the collective connections, it's over billions of dollars, so much money, wealth and knowledge and connections, but our share of humanity is really not there. People don't care really about things we talk about. And so, you know, and I'm be, being a lucky young global leader from the World Economic Forum, you know, I was sent in Kakuma in 2018. When I went there, I was so sad when I came back because I couldn't believe that, you know, I was an African woman seeing my fellow Africans living in that camp. And I couldn't eat for weeks. I was really sick. I couldn't. I was very upset and confused. And I realized that if I don't do anything, nothing will happen. And I, I realized I've got this, this massive power and massive influence being one of these Senegalese women sitting at the World Academic Forum, being asked to come and, and be part of this forum. I said, the, what the World Economic Forum has given me is so unbelievable that I can't just sit down in, in my little comfort in Guildford and forget about this. Because what's, what's the YGL community give us is this, this connections, this people, this power, this network. So I thought I'm going to use what was given to me to go out there to help the girls. So, so I go to Kakuma. Uh, it's a difficult place. You know, I was honored to take uh, Idi with me there. She spent a lot of time with me there. And uh, it's, it's really... A fascinating place. It's a hard place. It's dry. It's very difficult for the girls. They're very smart, very intelligent. But unfortunately, there's nothing for the girls. They, they, there's nothing we can do because the UNHR is a machine and it, is, it takes a long time to do anything. 
So I have to just use the, the powers given by the World Academic Forum and really look into ourselves and say, we have all this privilege the World Economic Forum has given us from connection to wealth. What do we do? And then we made a commitment to go back and help the refugees as young global leaders. And so one of the commitments I made was to make sure that when they get out of the camp, there's a, there's a plan for them. They can learn how to code like I did. I'm a full stack developer. I spent all of my time building applications and solutions. And I realized if we can give them at least a small tool to give them hope, because one of the things we forget is refugees cost money. They cost money to Europe, they cost money to the UK, they cost money to many places, but we have not thought about the reverse supporting them to give them the tools they need. And so I build the solutions. Uh, I go to the camp, I travel all the time with people to make sure that the world understands that we, we are responsible for what happened. And we need to start helping these young girls who are beautiful, smart, and Edie taught them how to speak well. And, and they, they've been coached, you know. Maria is here in the room and she's been fighting endlessly at the World Economic Forum to make sure we don't forget the refugees. And every time I tell her stories, her and I are always crying because it's, the, it's so emotional that we are sitting here and forget about the girls. So my work really is telling the world our humanity must include, must include those refugees. Thank you. That's an amazing story. Edie, you've been talking to a lot of leaders here over the last couple of days. The Ukraine situation is urgent. Brittany Kaiser, who's with the Own Your, Own Your Own Data Foundation and has been working on the fundraising around NFTs for the Ukraine effort, is on her way here. She's stuck with the Ukrainian delegation who's supposed to be coming. They're on another live stream. <laughs> so while we wait for them to arrive, can you give us a little bit of impact on the conversations you're hearing about the situation, particularly at the borders and just generally? Well, I think we're in a unique tornado of, of crises at the moment. I think the, the war in Ukraine, the aftermath of the pandemic, we have concerns about food insecurity. We have concerns about inflation. We've got the tech stocks falling. You've seen what's happened in, in crypto. But I think I want to say what's really on my mind, because it really impacted me this morning, was we live streamed with the girls this morning. They And this is the second time we did it. The first time we did it, in fact, you were with them in Kakuma. It was, it was January 2020. We Zoomed the girls into Davos and we had a conversation with them about, about what they wanted the world to know and what they wanted world leaders to know. And so we did the same thing this morning. And having been there in between and understanding a little bit about when they say things, what they mean, it is so impactful because everything I just mentioned about the tornado of crises is impacting those girls right now. All so of those? all of those things. So to begin with, climate change. They have more extreme weather. They have in, in parts of Kenya, they've had the, the locusts. They have impact on their food. We've had the Marianne was was kind of interpreting some of the things that they were saying this morning. The World Food Programs food that has come from Ukraine isn't coming anymore. So they're down to a meal a day, right? So the war in Ukraine is already affecting these girls in Kakuma. Let me just continue a tiny bit more. They absolutely understand about the rising food prices, the rising energy prices. They talk about people cutting down trees, right? And, and, it, and it's a sort of an oblique concept until you realize what they're talking about is members of the community that live around them cut down trees in order to have firewood 
to make their food on. And they talk about the fact that they want to, to plant trees to do that, and they want to, to give back. And so the impacts of poverty, of inequality, of non-inclusion are so very clear when you speak to them. The other thing that came out with, you know, a lot of, one of the things that we all hear about is the digital divide. And it's such a terrible piece of jargon because what it means is that it means that those girls don't have the tools. They know how to code. They have 14 devices for a school of 300, right? So think about what that would what that would be like for a school in the United Kingdom, in the United States. It would be an outrage. They also know how to ask for what they want, which I was very, very proud to see. So I just wanted to give a little taste about how the rest of the world and those these issues that we talk about, inequality, poverty, digital divide, war in Ukraine, how they are impacting these girls right now and impacting their future. Some of the girls didn't come back to school after the pandemic because the schools, you have to have money to go, right? So the parents can't pay anymore. Some of those girls have not come back. So that's what I mean by this tornado of crises impacting this community that I feel connected with and that I know that Mariam does as well. And it's a real and present danger to use that word. Yeah. It's, it sounds, Sorry to not let you ask the question. No, I, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's fascinating to hear this. And that's just in Africa. And the expectation is that it actually hasn't even started in terms of the food crisis because the wheat exports coming from Russia and from Ukraine have been impacted. But it's not really going to be felt until the fall because we're still drawing down reserves. And so I know that in Egypt and in other countries that are heavily dependent on Ukraine for grain, they're expecting to, to see rocketing food prices across everything. So while we wait for the Ukraine side of the conversation to develop, I want to ask you again, Miriam, as some of the people are, we're going to bring up in a few minutes to talk about solutions that they're building around this topic, our system for digital identity, Hub ID, Edie and I went to Germany to interview refugees in 2017, 2018 with Syrian refugees. And we were talking about the things that they need to be able to manage their transition. And one of the things that was really surprising for us is we thought that VEN, our digital currency, the payment capability would be the thing that they cared about. But it turned out that it was actually something much more basic, which was just the ability to have a digital vault for storing documents. And this is one of the things that really gave rise to this discussion now four years later, because Hub ID, our digital identity service, does a lot of things around identifying aspects of a person. And it also has the capability to attach documents into that. And we started building that because of these refugee discussions. We were hearing that People are leaving their homes and they take the paper deed of their home or they take their driver's license or they take their passport. And in the transition, in the migration, whether they're coming from the Global Goals Cast episode of the person who went from Central Africa to Europe and in that journey or from Latin America to the, the border with Mexico, there's paper documents. And these paper documents get lost, damaged, taken by authorities, stolen. So this idea of a secure digital vault to be able to upload documentation, what we would kind of take for granted with a Dropbox, but something that needs to be mobile ready, where you could at least snap a photo of something with your phone and automatically load it to a secure location, seems to be becoming a, a really urgent need. And so that's one aspect of what I think of when I think about this idea of a framework for helping people manage this stuff. 
So I want to ask you, Miriam, what do people need in this situation that we can help build? I mean, the thing is, when I talk to refugees, I, I don't, I don't prescribe what they need. I, I'm always, I go to Kakumono listening mode, and so I, I that's my, that's my decision. So I'm always 80% listening, 20% talking when I'm there, because uh, first of all, they go through so much pain and difficulty. Because I'm a technologist, I can build anything, and so I have got people who can build anything. But I, I, I don't go with the, in, the mindset that I can fix the problem, wear my Mackenzie hat on, and so I can fix the problem because it just won't happen. And so that happened before because we took some people who really got upset about the whole situation. It wore the Mackenzie hat on, and oh, we will fix everything. And then it takes ages; it doesn't get fixed, and then people get disappointed. The girls, we don't promise them anything. So I don't promise them who's going to come. I don't tell them anything. But the people we work with, think about the UNHR is almost the oven, the big oven in the, in the system here. They're the one that should really do all of this work. Because for 32 years, the girls and the boys in Kakuma have been waiting. They wait and they wait and they wait and they wait. And so I think what we need is, first of all, to, to listen to the refugees, really listen to them very carefully and, and ask them what they need. And they usually know what they need, but they are scared or afraid of telling us what they need because if they complain too much, the, you know, the UNHR may, may create some problems or people may create some problems, so they don't say anything. But the solution I always try to bring is say, what can we do for you to have an exit plan? So I'm always trying to ask them, what can we do for you to get out of this camp? What do, you, what do we need to do? And I realize what they need really sometimes is money. Sometimes they don't want to be in the camp. They want to eat well, sleep well. They want to have skills so they can get jobs. So my focus right now is on skills. How do you build the skills? Do you create a platform? So I did a create a platform because endless companies goes to Kakuma refugee camp. UNHR have got so many partners, global partners, who you know thinks they can fix things, but they've been waiting and waiting and waiting for ages. And so what I what I tell them is, why don't we build a platform where you can go and learn how to code? basic coding skills, four fundamentals you can learn how to code. And then how, how about life skills and soft skills? And give them the solution. So when they, when they look at the platform, they can say, actually, I've got an exit plan. Because right now, there is no platform, except we have Coursera, we have Udemy, we have endless e-learning solutions. I mean, like thousands of them, a lot of them. And sometimes these people want to make business. They don't want to give for free. And you have people who actually want to do good at the same time, but they, they can't do good 100%. They want to do good maybe 20%. And so I tried to work with those people, the multi-stakeholders, I said, find a little bit of uh, kindness in your heart for you to give this for free. And Coursera, they've been doing amazing work in doing that because before that, you know, the, the last mile of education, and my argument here at Davos is, most of the thing we forget is that the last mile of education is very expensive. And if you have to, Kakuma girls don't have $15 to pay for their certificates. They don't have that money. And so if you're going to give Coursera to somebody, give the full Coursera and the full certification. The refugees, give them everything. They already have lost so much. And so don't make it uh, you know, a trap until the certification. Certification is dignity for them. So give them the whole Coursera. You know, give them everything. And once you give them that, then at least they can be proud of themselves and they can go and find jobs. That's one thing that I always am arguing about. And the second thing we need to give them is jobs. 
give them jobs because they really little money, hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, and I think that's what you know WEF have done here to to bring this guy called Okello, who's been my mentee for the last three years now. And the change in his life, it is now in Germany, you know, he's struggling to adapt and it's very difficult for him because he doesn't understand the system. He left to Kakuma, but now he's in Germany, it's very cold, people, you know, it's very difficult, he's trying to adapt. But he's a film, he makes movies, you know, he makes social media. So the, for WEF to actually invite him at Davos to be part of the media team creates a bit of hope for him because someone probably will meet him or Eddie can hire him, somebody will meet him and say, okay, look, come and do this for us. Film aid is in Kakuma. We should put him on our social media team next He's year. He's a really amazing guy, but without those opportunities, Okelo will be in Germany with mental health issues, yeah. all of this. So I think the point I'm trying to make is we need to, we need to go, on, we, we can't prescribe, but we need to work with them to find solutions for them. Well, I think, Miriam, I'm so happy to hear what you've said because in our thinking about this, we've identified four categories for this framework. And this is really just something that we're literally throwing up on the wall. And the idea is to be able to get framework feedback from you guys. The next stage of this conversation is to invite a couple of you up who I've spoken to and invited to, to join to talk about things that you're doing to help on this situation. The four areas that we've identified in within Hub Culture for the beginnings of a framework are digital identity, certifications, matchmaking, skills. And amazingly, Miriam, you did not see that before, but I'm so happy to hear what you just said because that you just talked about, about all them, four right? of those things. I mean, I would so, say skills at the top because skills are really needed. Okay, and, and I would love, I, how would you rank these? Absolutely. I mean, it's fantastic what you've done. The matchmaking, absolutely beautiful. But the skills is what will give them money. And I think we also should add values, which is dignity. One of the things people don't know, they want to give, but they don't actually know that empathy, compassion and kindness and dignity, just for you to listen to the refugees, just look at them eyes to eyes and see them as people, helps them be part of you. And I think that's what traveling all the way to Kakuma as a journalist, going there and spending time with them, eating with them, looking at them, mingling with them, shows that actually you care about them. And when you come back, you can talk about skills. Okay. So can I invite you up? Tell us your name. I know that you're from Finland and you guys are working on a payment card for Ukrainian refugees. Okay. So it's tell us about good. what you're doing. Hello, everyone. I'm Denise Johansson, co-founder and co-CEO of Enfuse. We founded Enfuse to enable change within the payment industry. So we are old bankers and uh, found out some years ago that payments are actually the destiny of our lives. And as anyone privileged to be living in the Nordic, and, uh, but we still want to have a purpose. How can we enable change for all populations globally? We believe in digital transactions rather than cash, because with cash you can do harm to people. And in the Nordics, we are moving away from cash. So we are empowering cashless societies. But then again, when refugees are coming to the Nordics, what is the only thing we give them in allowance? It's cash. And we do that in vulnerable situations, having people queuing for long hours up north where it's really cold. And how come we are doing this and what could we do better? And that's how the idea of our first aid card came about. 
So us seeing the Ukrainian refugees queuing for hours every month to get 100 euro allowance. Why not give them a card in the hand and powering that card with that 100 euro every month? They can live wherever they want in Finland or in the Nordics. They will get their allowance and uh, they can have some freedom in that vulnerable situation in life. So we started off with giving something to the Nordic refugees, but we can do this throughout EEA. So we believe that in Europe, the national migration societies, they should empower their refugees to be part of that society. So let the refugees be part of your own society. Let's treat them equally like we do with our own people. And that's when cashless comes in on the first aid card. Yeah, and I think that in Poland right now, this is incredibly important. Um, they say that, especially when you talk to refugees, the thing they need most is often cash, but it's difficult to do last mile inclusion. MasterCard, one of our partners here at the Ice House, is working on this as well to deliver prepaid cards. I know that WFP is now moving to cards as well. But there is a crisis looming with WFP because if there's one organization that needs more funding here in Davos as a super high priority, it's WFP because the price of food is skyrocketing and it's there are millions and millions of people a month around the world who are even not refugees who are absolutely dependent on the World Food Program. So for those of you listening, go to WFP.org, make a donation. I'm going to ask you to come up now. This is Mike Zuckerman doing really incredible work across the burner community and beyond for really looking at the intersection between cities and refugees. Tell us what you're doing. Sure. Hello, uh, Mike Zuckerman. I am an activist who creates physical spaces, which I'm getting the turn to. I've been to about 100 refugee camps around the world. This does make me experienced, but does not make me have the answers. It's a very complicated situation, and I do feel that there's a need for, especially with the numbers that we're projecting, for not only putting people into camps, but actually making settlements, which are eventually cities. All cities started as camps. You know, Paris was a, a Roman outpost where people just gathered closer to be safe, and then they built the wall a little bigger. And over time, it develops into an economic and cultural powerhouse. There's a ton of capacity. One of the main terms I like to focus on is capacity recognition. People already know how to help themselves. There's a lot of refugee-led organizations that are very capable of delivering services. They have empathy for their situation. They have understanding. They speak the same language. They know who's problematic. So yeah, I've been working uh, mostly in Uganda. I work in a 64-year-old refugee camp called Nakivale. It has people from 12 different nations. Uganda hosts the most refugees in Africa, and they have policies where they allow people to work. And that's something I think should be modeled for other, for other countries as well to be their policy. We're talking about Burning Man. It's a temporary city that's set up for 80,000 people. The central organization provides infrastructure, but then people build it themselves. And I think that that's kind of what's needed because the current model of dependency that comes with the humanitarian industrial complex, as I call it, really breeds dependency. 
And it's very expensive to pay for everything if people can't work. You have to food and clothing and housing and everything. Whereas I'm really advocating for more of a property manager approach where there's still centralized authority, but people can go out and earn their money and you know buy their own food, support their own family and have dignity as you, you talked about. And the other thing is, the centralized authorities aren't necessarily equipped to deal with the current situation. I'm just coming back from the, the Polish-Ukraine border, and there was no one there to receive these one point, we passed uh, at our Medica border crossing, passed over 1.4 million people. And it took over five weeks for any official organization. IOM was the first one to build a tent there. It took them over five weeks just to get the paperwork. And by that time, we'd already passed around 800,000 people. So who's there is local people. And that's really what I see is in, in refugee context, the local people are the refugees. In this Polish response, it was Polish people. But these are just concerned citizens showing up that don't necessarily have experience doing this, but they have passion. And so what I'm really advocating for and talking about here is how can we organize a, a first response to be ready to not have to rely? Because if, if we're waiting for the authorities to show up, they're really not coming. So yeah, there's, and, and just to mention too, that there's a big focus on Ukraine, but just because that that situation has happened does not mean that the other situations around the world have stopped or slowed. That's um, not the case. So yeah, there's a lot of different contexts here. I'm really excited to hear from all the different people that are coming up with solutions in the, the private sector. I kind of trust it more than the NGO sector. I do work for an NGO uh, called Alight. We work with uh, IDEO, a design firm, to transform what was the American Refugee Committee into taking much more of a human design-centered approach and really hoping focus on lifting up uh, and recognizing the capacity of refugees themselves. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I'd like to take a moment to invite Gail Whiteman from Arctic Base Camp up, and I have a specific question for you. You can come and sit here. So Gail is with the Arctic Base Camp, and I'd like to take the view out long-term for a minute. You're very involved with the scientific you know, approach to the long-term effects of climate change. And it is climate change that is actually going to drive the largest number of refugees. We know that you work with the scientists who are tracking what's happening in the Arctic, which directly affects sea level rise, which is actually a kind of existential threat for the refugee situation because like 60% of the world lives within you know, a close proximity to oceans. So if oceans rise too much, we're gonna see unprecedented displacement. So can you just give us a little bit of the longer term perspective? What does it look like to 2030? What does it look like to 2040 if we don't change the, the arc? Well, this is unexpected for me to be on stage. So yeah, great to surprise. see you, Stan. Surprise! <laughs> and, and wonderful to be here. I think that, that the Arctic is really the barometer of global risk. What we're seeing in the Arctic, it's warming at, at least three times the rest of the planet. So we're losing the sea ice. Greenland glacier is melting. That's where the sea rise threat comes in. And we're also seeing the greening of the Arctic and instability in permafrost. And there's enough methane in permafrost that will eat up 40% of the remaining carbon budget, even if we're trying to get it two degrees. So huge threat here. But it's not just from a sea level rise perspective. How the Arctic is, straight, is changing the global climate system and ramping up extreme weather is actually going to drive migration and refugees beforehand. We, we've got good data showing how the Arctic has changed mid-latitude, it threatens food and water security, and people move because they can't 
survive there. And so we're going to just continue, continue having that. Anything above a 1.5 C warmer world means it's very likely we will lose the Arctic summer sea ice. And I always say it's, that's bad news for the polar bear, but what it really means is that that's a barometer for global risk, and we're going to see that, that the refugee tide coming rapidly. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Gail, can I swap you out? And I will no, you, invite you up and say who you are and any ideas on frameworks for helping us exit displacement. My name is Agnes Kalibata. I was last year's UN Food Systems Special Envoy the Secretary General Special Envoy. And I mean, I grew up in a refugee camp, right? I grew up until I was, I got my PhD when I was still living in a refugee camp. Mm -hmm. So from the time I was born to the time I, I got my PhD. So when I heard you all talking and speaking, I particularly related to the whole idea of when people do free, they actually find the local people that you find become the very people that really become your first anchor and, and help you establish. And so I really appreciated what your colleague earlier was saying, how Ukraine, I mean, the people that Ukrainians found on the ground were the people that really provided the first line of support. So that's, that's really my own experience as well. I mean, the only reason I got out here is to say, you're all doing an amazing job. If it wasn't for people like you, I wouldn't be me here now talking about climate change. I was at the Arctic at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. And people don't know, actually, that Arctic started recording climate change in 1922. We accept we all have just been keeping quiet. We've been pretending it will go away or hoping it will go away. And it doesn't go away. It only gets worse. If you live in the equator like me, there are already 19 million Africans that are refugees because of climate change. Yeah, so I mean, they will need our support. As this situation continues to get worse, people need our support. And it's just good to know that there are institutions and people like you all that keep drumming the beat and keep providing the support so that all these people can find support. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. So thank you for what you're doing. I've got one question for Agnes. I don't know if I ask. So I, I work in Kakuma, and I wanted to have you on the podcast for so long. Hopefully, it's gonna, we're going to make it. David asked me to, to, to interview you. I, I work in Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. I know it's part of your, in your heart. And, and my girls eat one meal a day in Kakuma. And I know you need funding from the World Food Program. What can we do here to make sure the girls are eating? I teach them how to code. I'm a programmer. But they're very hungry. In so it's very unfortunate that there are people that are eating one meal a day, and that's what we saw during COVID-19, that actually the number of people that had the means to be able to put a, food, a meal on the table went down significantly, mm. and the number of people that could put a nutritious meal on the table went, went down even further. So listen, it's not that we are not producing enough food in the world. It's not that we don't know what needs to be done. It's just that action for inclusivity, standing out and working and being able to support the people among us that mm. have the biggest challenges is not something that is happening enough. Mm. But that's why one of the, the, the critical takeaways from the summit was around ensuring that we double down on inclusivity, whether it is businesses, whether it is governments, whether it is everyone. Right now, what you're talking about is farmers in Africa. Mm. 
even as Ukraine crisis is going on, their biggest challenge is that they find the next seed to plant, that they find the next fertilizer to plant. So we, we need to empower people, not, not feed people. Talk about fishing. Mm -hmm. This is the opportunity that we've probably all been waiting for. Can we use this attention to actually empower people? to have the means to be able to do things themselves. Because every time you need someone to feed you, they'll come a little bit too late, a little bit too little. So I would just say that everybody work to ensure that communities are being empowered mm. to survive the challenges they're living with, that we are strengthening resilience. That would be my biggest call. I mean, yeah. like for you and I to be in Davos, it's absolutely incredible, you know, based on our backgrounds and where we came from. Yeah. So as you walk on the uh, here, what message you have for the world leaders and this amazing place we are in right now, cup culture and, and this place is really a place of humanity yeah. where they, they gather people to, 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 to listen and to hear. What message would you have for the world leaders wandering around? I mean, there are two messages as you think about it. There are two things. I come from Africa. Africa is suffering the deepest if you talk about climate change. There's a lot that's going on from a climate change perspective. But Africa can still produce too. So not the crisis has created lots of problems, but we have the ability, the means to produce. So how do we double down and ensure that communities have the ability to produce and survive this crisis? We really need to make sure that this is the time we, we get to use this crisis to actually ensure that we, we are pushing means down. So that's number one. We just need to do that and, and do more of it. Number two, we need to come through on all the talking. We've done enough talking. There are lots and lots and lots of conversations where we've made commitments, lots of commitments. If we had come through a 1972 Stockholm commitments, we probably wouldn't be here today from a, a climate change perspective. So we need to come through on our commitments. We need to take action more and talk less. If we went back and looked at all the actions we've committed to and just came through on even 10%, 15% in the next five years, the world would change. But we, we are just not coming through on our commitments. So, but that's how I look at it. Well, thank you. <laughs> Hub Culture wants to make a commitment. Miriam, we've been talking, Edie and I, for quite a while, since before her first visit to Kakuma, we really want to bring a hub to Kakuma for at least a little while. And so, you know, this is the first time we're publicly saying this, but sometimes when you say things publicly, you're on the record. So I really want to commit to you, me and Edie and our team is going to work to bring a hub to Kakuma for at least a few days at some point, as soon as we can. And we think it's really something we've been thinking about since the girls were on in 2020 in Davos. I got to talk to them and it was a really wonderful moment. So we really want to make that happen. I wanna continue shifting the conversation. Gail, let's keep it going on climate change. Great. This is the big existential issue, right? Because we have climate displacement driving political displacement, which drives people displacement. Which drives conflict, yeah. which drives more emissions, right. human rights abuses. You know, it's a last year in Davos, circle. right on this very stage with Julia Jackson at Grounded, we did a session called the 1.5 degree imperative. Yep. And the feeling was that we need to stay under 1.5 degrees. But the reality is, is that we're really on track for three degrees. Mm -hmm. What do we need to do to shift that timeline? I mean, net zero isn't enough. And... We need to go beyond, but is it carbon capture? Like, what, what well, do you I, think is the most important thing we can do in the grand scheme of things? Well, I mean, there's no question the most important thing we can do is actually to cut emissions by half by 2030. So if we do not do that, we can't do anything else. 
there's no silver bullet stand. So there's lots of ideas that carbon capture or nature-based solutions that will plant more trees alone can, can fix it. That's just not going to be the case. So we're going to have to use all of the tools that we have and all of the options that we have, including probably some carbon capture and storage, but it's not a silver bullet. Then we've got this sort of really, I think, quite scary options around geoengineering. They deserve more research without a question. I'm a scientist, so you always have to really figure out the unintended consequences and the potential benefits. But again, the idea that it's that there's a silver bullet, it's like when I saw Don't Look Up, I was like, wow, we have to look up, you know, because the techno fix, the one techno fix that will make us safe is just not going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to work. And there's too much at risk anyway. Exactly. So... If we need to change, what do we need to change? I mean, it is so multifaceted. Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about this because I think, you know, I start off by thinking if we just get the facts out there, that will make a difference. And then I thought, well, if we just communicate the facts in a better way, that will get out there and that will fix it. And now I think it really comes down as we have to make people have more courage. I think the facts are out there. I think the solutions are out there. And I think it comes down to courage and how do we actually have that spread real courage like you know we all know that there are times in our lives starting from very early as children we have to do things different and when we do things different we feel uncomfortable about that we want to be part of the group we want to be accepted but to actually be afraid and be vulnerable you need courage and that's what we need now we need the ceos we need the leaders they have to stand up and do stuff that they it's going to make them unpopular, going to maybe fail. And I think it comes down to courage. We need hearts of like we're a lion. That's what I think we need. Very good. Thank you. Okay, we're going to pivot now to this conversation around the frameworks for each of the tables. We'd like to invite you to have a conversation around digital identity, certifications, matchmaking skills. Help us build this framework. If you guys could just spend a few minutes talking about what other things we could potentially begin to build. We're a technology company. We know other companies. We want to start an initiative that's open source, that's collaborative, that's designed to bring in really anybody who wants to participate to begin building a long-term framework for exiting displacement. It's probably the most important conversation I think that we're having at the Hub this year. This, this moment has meant a lot to me because I've been thinking about it ever since Ukraine erupted a couple months ago, but really going back to Kakuma, the conversation with the girls in 2020, and back to Meg and Edie and I in Germany with refugees in 2017, we can't do it alone, so we have to do it together. So I ask you guys to help us think about this framework, help us build this framework, and when we come back, we'll be with the girls from Kakuma. Okay, and we're back for the Hub Culture Chronicles podcast, live from the Hub Culture Summer Campus in Davos. Right now, we're live with the girls from Kakuma and Mariam Jame. Welcome, girls. Hello from Davos. How are you today? I'm doing good. Good. Are you in school today? Yes, I'm in school. Yeah. What are you studying? Actually, in the morning, we have, we have studied physics. Uh, we have done math. Kiswahili, English, and chemistry. Mm. Is it hot right now out there? Okay, here it's not that much hot, but the weather is just hot. Mm. How are you feeling today? Are you okay? Are you excited yeah. like I am? Yeah, we are very excited. Is Teacher Francis there? Yeah, yeah he's, he's walking. There. Yeah. There's something that he's doing. 
Good, good, good. Well, we are here. We are very happy to see you. We are in a big place. You know, we are in a big, big place in the world. It's called Davos. When I come back in July, we'll talk about it. But it's a big, big place, okay? Many yeah. people are listening to you now, okay? It's a very important moment for you girls. So we would like to know about your vision for your life. Okay. My vision for my life is that, for me, I would like to become a journalist. So I can't just become a journalist like that. For me to become a journalist, I would like to do something that will make me pursue that dream of mine. So here in, in this school, when I was back in the primary school, I used to involve myself in journalist club. That club used to help me on practicing my career. I used to come up with news or if there is something that is going on in school, I used to just pick little, little news for me to deliver them maybe on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I hope that with those practice that I do, they will help me or they will make me pursue that dream of mine of becoming a journalist. And what about you? Okay, for me, my dream is, and my vision is that I would like to become a politician and change my country. I would like to make sure that around the roads there's a lot, there's flowers around in every house to have every house to have a tree, and that is what I'm up to. And also, make sure that there is be a greenhouse everywhere and garden for people to go and enjoy themselves because there we don't have a garden for families maybe to go and enjoy themselves. I would like when I become a, let me just say a president, I would like my country to be called a flower country because I want it to be purely green because the weather there is very good, but it's only people are doing carelessly. So when I become a leader, I would like to make sure that my country will be like a flower because wow. I love flowers. That's so nice. What is your country of origin? Maybe Stan doesn't know. Can we tell him? South Sudan. Can you tell us how you came yeah. to Kakuma? Okay, we came to Kakuma actually in a very bad condition because when we came, it was 2013 when the war broke out. So my father died there and we just came with my mother struggling on the road, afraid of being attacked anytime. And when we arrived here, we didn't know the language. We start slowly by slowly knowing Swahili, knowing one another, being in the camp without anyone's support. So sometimes we lack some of the things, but right now it's better because at least we are pushing and we have some support from the donors. How about your coding? Do you like your coding? Can you tell him about your coding and your tablets? Okay, for me, I like, my, I like coding most because in coding I also like communication because I would like to learn how to communicate with people so that when I grow up, I'll be able to, when it comes to communication, I'll be able to talk. And also, apart from that, in coding, we, are, we made some games in Angelina Jolie, but it did not succeed. We have few devices, and we didn't have a teacher to train us from that time, so it's new for us. So, but we tried and make a game for, like, trees, someone chasing someone who has been cutting down the trees, trying to stop that person from destroying the environment. And that was the game that we were doing in the coding. And also, but the, the best thing that I like most is this communication in coding. Okay. Thank you. Marianne? I'm very proud of you, you know? Really proud of you girls. It's important to hear your stories. Anything you want to add before we go? Okay, for me, 
the thing that I would like to talk about is just uh, thank you people for the day of today. I really enjoyed this day. Today I'm very happy because I met very different kind of people. So if I could have not been in I am the code, I will I have not got this chance of communicating with you people. But I thank God that I am involved in I am the code and right now I can communicate with different kind of people, getting advices from people, and that will encourage me so that I can work hard to be also to become like you people to help the other girls that are in this camp. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you again digitally in the universe, in the metaverse, and maybe someday elsewhere in the world. Good luck. Study hard, okay? Okay, thank you. Thank you. We'll see you again soon. Thank you, everyone. You know, I'm very excited that you guys came. Thank you. And let's have a little collaboration and try to make the next step on this long journey. For those of you who've been listening, thank you for joining the Hub Culture Chronicles. You can find more episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and on Hub Culture, managed by Zeke.ai. We'll see you again very soon.